But it's really difficult to do something like that in an objective manner, even if we're trying to be objective and we're saying, okay, a piece can be great if it has form, but we're not explaining what kinds of forms constitute great forms. And what if it doesn't have a traditional form? Is it not a great piece anymore? Is there no, you know, we're thinking again about pedagogy, does there, is there no educational value in this? This is Behind the Peak, a podcast written and produced by the faculty and students of the University of South Carolina School of Music's Music History Area. I am your host, Sarah Williams. Behind the Peak episodes are informal interviews with guests of the Louisa E. Peak Music and Culture Colloquium Series, a public event series hosted by the Musicology, Ethnomusicology, and Experimental Music faculty at the School of Music dedicated to showcasing diverse programming and guests, especially emerging scholars and artists. Behind the Peak is not just a conversation, but a collaboration. Our guest today is Kate Storhoff, and she's interviewed by Dr. Alexandria Carico, Assistant Professor of Ethnomusicology and Musicology. Today, we welcome Dr. Kate Storhoff to our podcast series. Dr. Storhoff was a recent guest at the Lisa E. Peak Colloquium and gave a presentation called Not Yet Bridging the Gender Gap, Women's Experiences in Composing for the 21st Century Wind Ensemble. Her research on the contemporary wind band and ensemble repertoire focuses primarily on the underrepresentation of composers of diverse backgrounds. In addition to her full-time work as the bookstore manager at the Bookmarks Literary Arts nonprofit and independent bookstore in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Storhoff teaches part-time at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts and Wake Forest University, and she holds a PhD from Florida State University. So thank you so much for joining us today, Kate. Uh, We are thrilled to have you with us and to follow up on a few questions from your visit here. I'm really happy to be here. I had such a great time visiting the University of South Carolina last week, so... Wonderful. I know the students really enjoyed meeting you. And after this uh, initial question, I will open it up with some of the questions that the students sent me subsequently. But I guess I would love to start and just ask you if you would share your story with us. What led you to study the wind ensemble and musicology? And then what led you to take a step back from musicology and then step into the nonprofit literary arts world? I started my dissertation research in 2015. I had wanted to write about the wind ensemble and its repertoire, especially contemporary repertoire, especially by living American composers, since even before I became a musicologist and was often told no one will take you seriously if you want to write about band music. And I kept thinking, but why not? This music is incredible. It's innovative. It's exciting. It honors living American composers. It works closely with living American composers to realize their works. And I set out to explain why this music was worthy of musicological study and why it was a valuable part of our American musical life. As I was doing this, I began to realize, oh, I'm making these arguments about 
complexity and seriousness being values of greatness and values of something that makes something worthy of study. And I am falling into the same traps that have kept marginalized composers out of our repertoire for decades, uh, centuries, if you're looking at other ensembles repertoires. And my research sort of took a turn trying to reconcile these two ideas that this music was worthy of study, but how could I explain so in a way that didn't allow myself to fall into the same traps? I'm never sure that I have managed to do this. I think that I'm always left with more questions than I started out with. And one of the exciting things about this research is seeing everyone else interact with it and bring their own ideas about this to the table. That's awesome. I, I know exactly what you mean. And I, and I love I love hearing you speak about the idea of great music and how that so shapes the way we study music, the kind of music we play and we program. And I'm wondering if you could, or if you had any advice for students who are attempting to come up with criteria for future educators who are thinking, what kind of music am I going to program for my students and how to critically think about what great means and how greatness or the idea of greatness might actually be a barrier for them and their students? That's a great question. I think it, the second the word criteria is brought into the conversation, we start running into difficulties. The band world loves to, and I think, again, this is a largely a pedagogical community. So in some way, we have to have criteria that evaluates a work that makes it clear to band directors, can I program this for my players' ability levels? Uh, there's a lot of practical reasoning behind the criteria we apply. But it's really difficult to do something like that in an objective manner, even if we're trying to be objective and we're saying, okay, a piece can be great if it has form, but we're not explaining what kinds of forms constitute great forms. And what if it doesn't have a traditional form? Is it not a great piece anymore? Is there no, you know, if we're thinking again about pedagogy, does there, is there no educational value in this? So it's really, this is, you know, one of those roundabout answers is that I don't know that there are a set of criteria that work. You know, from my perspective, when people were telling me this music isn't worthy of academic study, I kept thinking, but we play this music, we love this music, this music is part of so many American musicians' lives, so isn't it worthy of study because of that? Like, why does it need to be evaluated on any other basis other than it's performed, it is listened to, and it is enjoyed? And I really think that's important. I think if you're the person in the position to choose this repertoire, whether you're a band director on the podium choosing music for your students, or you're a music history professor in the classroom choosing music for your students to study, one of the things that I return to again and again is this idea that we have to see ourselves on the page to know that something is possible for us. You asked about my career change too, which this is a great time to bring that up. I left academia and began working for a literary arts nonprofit and independent bookstore. I manage the bookstore side of this organization, but am still involved in our nonprofit work. And one of the things that we're 
interested in is making sure that readers see themselves in the pages of a book and see themselves in the identities of the authors who write the books. And that is exactly the same kind of thing I want to see happen in classrooms and in concert halls. And it's the same idea that to make someone feel like they belong in this world and they can pursue a career or even not even pursue a career. You don't have to do these things professionally to enjoy band music and listen to band music or to play in a community band once you are no longer in school anymore. Uh, we want everyone to know that this is something that exists for them and seeing yourself on the page is such an important part of that. I could not agree more. I think about this all the time when I'm teaching, just from a personal perspective. Similarly, you know, we we both went through the musicology program at Florida State University, and something that we talked about quite often is looking at the, the makeup of the scholars who we're reading and not seeing ourselves in their work. Which brings us to one of the questions that was submitted by one of our undergraduate music majors here. They ask, why are there not more women composers in the CBDNA represented throughout the years? And how can we make a change? That's a great question. I think the first part of the answer is there are plenty of women composers out there, and they may not be being programmed on these very prominent programs at this national conference. One band director I spoke to did point out maybe they're programming women the rest of the year, but they're not programming them on this one concert. So there's several levels here. And I think this is, again, the stage at the national CBDNA conference is a really big deal. And anything that's programmed on one of those concerts is immediately has some value attached to it. So it's a really important place to put your band behind a composer's voice. So maybe they're not being programmed on these concerts on these on this particular stage. Maybe they're not being programmed at all, but the works are out there and we just have to work a little bit harder to find them. Uh, it's harder to find recordings of these works, maybe. It's harder to find them in the pages of big distributors of music publications. Uh, so it might take a little bit work, more work for us to find some of those pieces. The other thing is, is that there may be fewer women composers in general. Uh, when we think about the way academic composing has been set up, this idea of you know, getting a com composition professorship and having access to college wind ensembles. This is still something that is inhabited by men and has been inhabited by men for the previous decades. And we might not be seeing as many women in these positions of power in the composition world. Uh, so it does take time too to open up and making sure that there's more women represented here. But they are out there if we do the work to find them and use the work that other people are doing uh, 
the people who run the And We Were Heard project. I always like to name drop this project that is run by mostly by band directors and composers who are working to make sure that they have a database, not just of a list of pieces that you can play, but also recordings of some of these pieces. And they're constantly adding more and more recordings. Uh, it's incredibly accessible. It's such good work to get the word out there so we can find these works by these composers. Absolutely. Uh, and actually, I one of the students asked, how was the organization and we were heard formed? They were really interested and thought that this was an incredible resource for band directors. Oh gosh, I'm I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember all of the details for how this project was formed, uh, but there's so many names involved. Christian Folk, who I know you know, and Amanda Bova, I think is her name. Cliff Crooms is involved. There's so many names involved in this. And this is a true kind of gathering of minds. This is a lot of people who have come together because this is important to them. And that is, I think, an important point too, that we can't just have one person doing this work. We do need to come together and work collectively to make a large enough impact on the community that we have access to this type of these types of records somewhere. And I, I think it's so important to recognize that this is the work of collaboration and it's everyone's work to do. Another student asked, what can a young woman studying music do now to make an impact in bridging the gender gap for the future? And as sort of a related question, she said, how can I bring more exposure to this issue currently as a woman studying music? Oh, that's a great question. I think one of the things that you can do best as a student is to ask questions. Uh, as a student, maybe you're not in a position of power yet, but you're studying with the people who are. So ask them questions and ask them for resources and just make it part of the expectation in your education. That is a big ask for some people, and it might be easier said than done, depending on your situation. But asking questions is always a great start as a student. And then one of the things that I've talked about with instrumentalists and performers who are interested in having a higher representation of different kinds of voices in their repertoire is it doesn't just have to be the big performance works that we're seeing uh, an increased amount of representation at. It could be the etudes that you're practicing in the practice room. So instead of having your saxophones play oboe repertoire by white men from centuries ago, um, perhaps it's time to look for some other music that's being composed today that could work for etudes as well, that you can get the same uh, technical practice from, but isn't the same old stuff we've been playing for decades, for even centuries for some instruments uh, by the same old dead white European men. So looking at all levels, not just, you know, we want to see, we want to see the big you know, 45-minute multi-movement showstopper works composed by women. We definitely want that, but we also want all levels. We want to see warm-up exercises composed by women, that we're seeing uh, more voices normalized in every part of the, the musical experience. Certainly. And you mentioned in your talk that that also, an important component of that is women on the podium as well. Mm -hmm. 
yes, I really do think that's important. And one thing that uh, anyone who you look to who's talking about this topic in the band world will say it is not a women conductor's job to program works by women. That is absolutely not what we're saying. However, the more you see women in all aspects of what you're doing, you see a woman on a podium leading a group, not just playing in the group, it starts to make it more and more normalized that this there isn't this idea that this is a work that belongs solely to white men anymore, that there's opportunities for all kinds of people, not just women, but people of color, all kinds. Yes. I guess kind of along those same lines, you said it's not conductor's job just because they're a woman to program works <laughs> by women. Another student said or asked, what do you believe the majority representing composers, in parenthesis, white mm -hmm. men, can do to promote minority composers <sighs> without being condescending, i.e. women and minorities will only be programmed if the white men help them? Exactly. Yes, we really want to avoid, you know, the white male savior rushing in to help us. This idea that women and composers of color don't necessarily need someone to charge in and save them. But at the same time, if you are someone whose identity belongs to, you know, the identity that has held these positions of power, then you're in a position to be an ally and to talk alongside them and perhaps sometimes that might mean turning down opportunities which is really hard if you're starting out as a composer but maybe if you're already very successful maybe then it's a little bit easier to turn down an opportunity uh, so that someone else can get it and you know I think about one of the things that we talked about at CBD Day 2017 was when we had these composer forums and we had a panel of entirely men talking about why there were no women programmed. We talked about, well, what if we, in the aftermath of what happened, one of the composers said, oh, I should have invited a woman up there to talk so that I wasn't talking for them. So as much as possible, setting aside your voice to allow someone else's voice into the conversation can be something you can do. I would also, I just live in this world where I keep thinking, well, what if when a school is inviting a prominent composer to come and do a clinic while one of their groups performs one of this composer's works, what if that person is eventually in the position where they're able to say, I am only going to accept this invitation if I know there are going to be composers of diverse backgrounds programmed alongside me on this concert. And again, that's a huge ask to expect somebody to do that. But if someone was already in a position where they were able to do that, I think that speaks volumes. I mean, absolutely. And you mentioned the example of John Mackey, who on several occasions has used his renown and his reputation to really advocate for others and to take a step back. So yes. that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, John is doing great things. You know, he, he speaks out, but then his actions match what he's saying. And he's pretty thoughtful about it. And so are lots of the composers that I've spoken with and worked with over the years. It's a really, it's an accepting and a supportive world for the most part, my reading of it anyway. Uh, another person might view that differently, but it was Caitlin Bove of And We Were Heard. 
Oh, and I need to do more research into that project. I have only scratched the surface, but I mean, it's such an incredible resource that I feel like we all need to be shouting it from the rooftops (laughs) so that more people can access it. And they're not just doing band music too. Uh, You know, it's a lot of band people involved in it, but there are, there's recordings for works by living composers for orchestra as well. And that's, you know, also a genre that needs a little bit of help there too. You also mentioned in the case of, you know, certain people when they've already made it can kind of feel the freedom to use their privilege to advocate for others. But I'm wondering if you have any ideas about these sort of smaller daily acts of advocacy Mm -hmm. that students could be engaging in on a daily basis. That's a great question. I think one of the simplest things that you can do is listen widely and then recommend the music that you like. When you find something you like, tell someone else about it. And you can watch these names spread. You know, this doesn't have to be, I'm going to program a piece on a CBDNA national conference immediately. But maybe this starts out a recommendation from one friend to another, and then that friend recommends that. And maybe you share it on your social media. There are all kinds of ways and getting out the awareness. It seems like a small step to say, hey, I love this work, Spilled Orange by Judy Bozone. But now that I've said it on this podcast and someone might say, oh, I wonder what that work is. And they've listened to it and maybe they've told someone else. That's how the ball gets rolling. Small step, but small steps add up. I am, when I'm in the classroom, I'm learning about new music every day from my students coming from a vocalist background. And it's just so incredible to have this exposure. Um, And I think the recommendation of listening widely is very wise. I keep a playlist of all the music that my students mentioned that I've never heard of before. So even if I don't have time to listen right then, I can continually go back to this. And I find out about so much music from my students. Maybe that's a a thing of advice for students too. Don't assume that your professor already knows everything because we absolutely 100% do not. And we need your recommendations always. Oh, how true. That is sound advice, sound advice. (laughs) Well, Kate, I have one more question for you. One summer, I had the opportunity to go to the Boston University Tanglewood Institute, and we regularly had master classes with famous performers and scholars. And one of the questions we always asked was, what is something that you know now that you wish you had known when you were starting out. And so I, I will pose that same question to you. And starting out is could be broad. It could be when you first started playing the clarinet. It could be when you first decided to pursue this topic. Um, but what is one thing you know now that you wish you had known when you were starting out? I'll give two quick answers to The Kate who started out playing the clarinet in the sixth grade, I would have said, never assume that something is the norm just because it seems like the norm of what's being put in front of you. I think it took me until I was probably 21, 22 to start questioning why all the music I played was by white men. 
And I know most of the students today are asking that question so much earlier than our generation was, which is incredibly exciting. But that would be my first thing. Just don't assume that something is the way it is just because it seems the way it is. To the Kate starting out as a musicologist, I would say to be confident in what you like in that I know we always say, do what you love, research what you love. And we both know that that is not as simple as that sounds, that you do have to think about, okay, well, I'm going to research band music. I, I still need to research it in a way that speaks to other people that other people are interested in, that has some kind of relevance to more people than just me. So it's not as simple to just say, do what you love, but I think it's to maybe be confident in what you love and that it has value and that you will find other people who also think what you love has value and you'll have some great conversations about it. That is wonderful, wonderful advice. Thank you so much. And advice that I am going to be taking to heart as well, <laughs> because sometimes it's a constant process of reevaluating, you know, and you may be confident one day and then a few days later you need to just reconnect with that thank you so much for joining us for this is the very first podcast episode you are our first guest this is no incredible. pressure oh my goodness <laughs> no truly it it has been such a joy to speak with you and I know that you have already inspired so many students to begin looking deeper into not just wind ensemble repertoire but asking the questions about why we're playing the music that we're playing. Thank you for that. Thank you so much, Alex. It was a joy to visit your school and meet your students. And I wish everyone the best with what they're doing. You can find out more information about the Louisa E. Peak Music and Culture Colloquium series on our Facebook page, Instagram feed at Peak Colloquium, that's Peak with an E at the end, and on the U of SC School of Music website at sc.edu slash music. The Behind the Peak theme music was composed by David Kirkland Garner. Our podcast is produced by the students and faculty of the Music History Area at the University of South Carolina School of Music. Once again, I'm Sarah Williams, and you've been listening to Behind the Peak. <laughs>